What's it like to be caught in the crossfire of democracy? Our guest certainly knows, and we're going to talk about it. You speak, we listen. Conversations connecting people. This is The Chuck Williams Show. As I said, our guest here is somebody that you know and you've heard of. We're going to try to get to know Brad Raffensperger a little better. Um, Mr. Secretary, thank you for joining us today. I know you were in Columbus recently to speak to the uh, Rotary Club, and we appreciate you coming by for the podcast. Thank you for inviting me. I want to talk a little bit about people think they know you. They've seen you on TV. They've heard you in news conferences. You now have a book that will be coming out in a month. Uh, What do people not know about Brad Rasperger that they just assume based on this public persona that's out there now? Well, probably most people in the political world don't know my story. And I think really when you know someone's story, then that really will tell you a little bit about them. I was interviewed uh, after the you know, election disinformation of fall 2020. And uh, I, I thought, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go risky here. And I would say, well, it was about President Trump calling me. I said, well, he didn't know my story. And that was the lead-in. If you wanted to ask me my story, I was going to tell you, but you didn't. He didn't follow up on that because I guess he wasn't from around here. But Southerners know that everyone's got a story, and that'll tell you an awful lot about what has shaped them and what, what's molded them. What is your story? Well, I guess my story is, uh, you know, first of all, you know, my dad raised me uh, to really be a person, be quiet, humble, and uh, be truthful. And uh, he had those great World War II values. That whole generation were just people of character, as I see it. Hardworking. My dad was incredibly hardworking. Uh, my mom was part of the team of, you know, her and my dad. And it was just those traditional American values. And like I said to Rotary today, if you look at, you know, during World War II, it could have been, you know, some kid from Brooklyn. It could have been a, a kid from the coal fields of West Virginia or the cotton fields of South Georgia. Their values were all the same. They just had those different accents up north. But it was that we had these American values of honesty, hard work, and I think that's uh, really the core of what integrity is all about. How did you watch your parents, particularly your father, um, live those values? Do you remember a story, or is there something that sticks in your mind where you said, okay, this is an example of how you do it. This is values in action. Well, my dad, uh, he never condoned cheating. He wanted to make sure that, you know, if we we're going to get an A, we're going to B, whatever we got, we got it on our own efforts, so, you know, do your homework. But also, he was a person of integrity. Uh, people in the, in the company that he worked for, everyone loved my dad. He was very quiet, very competent, was, you know, solid engineer, contractor. But also, uh, I, I shared in my story one time, we had a whole bunch of, we were building our new house, uh, and we, we were there, and as kids, your, your job was to pick up the loose lumber or, you know, for the wood pile, the burn pile, things like that. But all of a sudden, there's a group of teenagers basically uh, stealing a, a bag of golf balls off this other kid. Because we lived uh, not too far from a golf course, and you could wade through the creek, pick up golf balls before they would run you off, and then you'd go back and resell them to the golfers, you know, a week or two later. Well, these kids came up from the city, and they're trying to steal these golf balls. And my dad saw what was going on, and they're pushing them around. And he, he told these kids to, you know, to shove off and leave them alone. So that was one I could share in the story. The other one uh, I shared at my dad's funeral. Um, and I thought, you know, as a middle school kid, um, they went to a football game with a good friends of uh, my parents. 
And uh, uh, next Saturday, Saturday morning, that woke up. I said, well, who won the game? And uh, um, I think it didn't matter who won, but then my mother said, your dad got in a fight. And that got me excited. He got in a fight. So then they proceeded to tell the story about a group of men sat behind, you know, my dad, uh, Mr. Dargavel, and both their wives. And um, they, they spilled beer on my mom. But they did that after several times that my dad told them to pipe down, behave themselves, and all that. And he just turned around and he punched the guy in the belly. And, uh, <laughs> and I said, what happened then, Dad? He said, he sat down. <laughs> and uh, I shared that because uh, at my dad's funeral, no one ever would have believed because he was just a quiet person. He wasn't, you know, anyone that, you know, was argumentative. He, uh, you know, ran the, you know, the operations for this business and did it very well. His, his superintendents loved him. People in the office loved him. Neighbors loved him. He's just a good, solid, decent human being. And that's really what America is populated with, is good, honest, decent human beings. What part of the country was, were you raised in? <laughs> All over. All of, I, was, I was born in Pennsylvania, so lived there first to fourth. But then my dad got transferred up to Toronto, uh, Canada. And so fifth grade through you know, college, uh, I lived up in Canada. I would have come back to America sooner, but there's this strawberry blonde that uh, I met on the 11th <laughs> grade, and we started dating in the 12th grade. And Trish and I ended up getting married when I was halfway through engineering school. And I was just afraid that if I go back to America for college, I really liked this girl. I, I was in love with her, yeah. and, uh, you know, I was afraid, you know, we might break up or something, and I wasn't willing to pay that price. So I got my engineering degree up in Canada, and then as soon as I graduated, I said, Tricia, I'd like to move back to America. And what people have to understand, that was in 1978, and guess who the president was? And things weren't going so good here. Mm-hmm. But I remembered, you know, really the small-town values that we had in Sinking Spring, Pennsylvania. They're not much different than small-town Georgia, just different accents. You know, and I just wanted to come back to see what America was like. It wasn't what I remembered. And so we moved back, lived in Michigan, Ohio, northern Virginia, and then we got here in Georgia in 1982, as I like to say, I wasn't born here, but got here as soon as I could. What do you? What about Georgia made it an attractive place for you to do business and raise a family? Well, number one, I am an engineer, and I'm in the construction business, and what you look for are tower cranes. And so you really look at where do you want to live? And I remember driving through Georgia going to see my aunt that lived down in Florida, you know, and I saw all these tower cranes going on, and lo and behold, I ended up in the as an engineer in the construction business. So going coming to Atlanta, Georgia, with tower cranes and all the road construction we had going on. Uh, uh, that road construction is still going on, by the it, way. It is, it is. <laughs> but uh, what Tom Moreland did was pretty awesome. He was a yeah. tremendous DOT commissioner. But saying all that, I knew it was a great opportunity. And then coming down here, you know, housing was much cheaper than northern D.C., so you could really buy a nice home and, uh, you know, plant your family. And then bit by bit, uh, you know, somewhere, you know, in northern Virginia, we've had our first child. The Lord was really starting to call me back. We really went to a spirit-filled church. Um, but I wasn't what you would call, you know, in southern parlance, uh, born again. But I moved down here and just been hanging around with a lot of, you know, good godly people. And bit by bit, uh, you know, ended up becoming a born-again Christian. And I uh, ended up with a Christian partner out in Columbus, Georgia. And um, a partner had for several you, years was Don Dobbins. And... Uh, Don passed away a few years ago. People um, don't realize that your business had a Columbus, Georgia oh, yeah, component yeah. to it for many years. Yeah, uh, so Don did structural steel erection and, and reinforcing and post-tensioning installation. And I did the post-tensioning engineering and the, the material side. We, we, we you know, came together as a partnership 
as a great partnership. We expanded, and you know, he brought to the table what I didn't have, and I brought to the table what he didn't have. So together, we complemented each other. For, and those, I, I, for those of us that aren't engineers, your business essentially is cabling that's but, used in big bridges, right? It's bridges, but also in high-rise construction. Your your condos down at the beach, or stuff down in you know, Buckhead, Charlotte, Nashville, all over. And so it's it's a high-strength steel product um, that's developed after World War II, and it's been modified and improved over the years. But that's you know that's our industry. My son runs the business now. This is a full-time job being Secretary of State. But uh, you know uh, Don's health was failing in around 2000. And he just wanted to just run his original business, and so um, you know I bought out his share, and then I continued on, and uh, that's really what our business has been. Started our first business was Trish and I had a daycare center, so I gave a shout out to the young fellow today in Columbus. He's going to have a daycare with his wife, age four and two, just like we were, you know, many moons ago. But it's it's just, and that's the American story too. You uh, you have to understand this is just an amazing country. When you travel the country, you get to see other parts. People are pretty much the same all over. The country's beautiful. You got good farms all and ranches all over the place. Good you know good water, good soil. It's just an amazing country from sea to shining sea. The only thing that kind of messes us up is the politics, and if we can figure that out. And I think you're leading me right into where we want to go with this. So Canadian-reared, American-born, Canadian-reared, engineer, Canadian-educated. Well, I have to correct that. We were were Americans that had all the eagles and the flags up there. I was what you would maybe call the ugly American up in Canada because I always told these Canadians how wonderful it was down down here. So you didn't fly the maple leaf. Oh, no, no. And my wife, she flies the American flag too. She loves it here. She's not leaving either. But when you look at it – you, you build a very successful business here in in Georgia. And then why did you decide to ruin it all and go into politics? <laughs> well, Fair question, Mr. Secretary. I really watched uh, what was happening around 2005, 2008, and I just saw really, it was really more national issues. And I, I kind of fussed a little bit like we all do. But what can you do as a business owner? you got to run your business every day. An opportunity came. I could run. I'll be on city council, and what city? It was city of Johns Creek. But I would encourage anyone if they want to get involved in politics, get involved in your school board, get involved in city council. You know, put put us a, a red light someplace, widen the street. You know, uh, build some parks. You know, things like that. But local government really is what you see the most every day. Those potholes, those aren't federal problems. Those are your local county, your city problems. And so when you can fix roads, you can widen streets, uh, you can improve lives a little bit better, as my youngest son was saying, uh, and that's a good thing. And so that's what I did on city council. Our, and and I'm running for a state house when that seat opened up. And our, our pothole issue is not really potholes right now. It's uh, it's uh, debris pickup. If you drive through Columbus, notice as you're going out, we got a lot of piles of debris. They're, they're bat-logged and now hiring um, in independent contractors to do some of that. But, you know, city council is where the rubber meets the road when you're talking about dealing with everyday people. What did you learn on the John I mean, Johns Creek is an – Interesting place anyway. It's North Fulton, right? North, North Fulton. So we had some of the uh, Fulton frustration, like everyone did. Mm-hmm. Uh, but also one of the, the mayor pro tem, as soon as I got on council, she said, we have seven voting men- members on this council. We need to learn to count to four. 
And what, I, what that meant is, you know, what Brad thought was the best idea in the whole wide world, he better get some other people that thought it was the best idea in the whole wide world. So you had to build coalitions, had to really, you know, build things, expand things, you know, with friendships. So you learned your political, you, you got your political stripes on a city council. And I know the state, you said you got to learn to count before the state, the thing here that Red McDaniel, a longtime counselor who passed away a few years ago, used to say was, all you got to do is get six. And it, we have a 10 member council. And they said, you can do anything with six votes. And, you know, that's, that's politics at its very core, right? Well, it's really, you're looking at listening to the people. You're so much closer. So when you have a zoning issue, it's not what's going to happen at the other end of the county. It's going to actually happen in your municipality, in your city. And so those are really, that's important issues. And so you really lean into you know, what your neighbors want to see their vision of the city to look like, but also make sure you run surpluses so that you, you know, build up your rainy day fund, which we did in Johns Creek. And then we actually, I introduced a two mil reduction fully paid for. It didn't fail. A couple years later when I was off council, they did the same thing. They had they realized that they did have the money, and then they gave a mil, uh, two mil reduction to the voters of Johns Creek. But that's a good thing. Uh, and so I think that you're looking at how do you make government more efficient? How do you make it so they can serve people better? You know, it really, there's no reason why a government can't have Chick-fil-A service. People say, well, it's, you, you can't. But actually you can because it all gets down to people serving people. And when you can really get that spirit of serving people within the organization. And so we're excited, like in the Secretary of State's office, we've actually reduced the amount of paperwork, you know, going through all the different forms that you have for our professional license holder. We have reduced all the different forms down 29%, so 30% reduction in different types of forms. So even though you might have this uh, registration here, we can still use the same form for a lot of the, the, the paperwork that you need to fill out. And so we can streamline paperwork that makes it more efficient for everyone throughout that process. You really climbed the political ladder. You went municipal government, state house, um, state constitutional officer. What was your favorite job? What's been your favorite job in politics? They're all different, and so they're all great. Uh, I loved really being on city council. I thought it was a lot of fun. In the state house, I got to serve with 180 uh, house members. And people really need to understand that I believe the Georgia General Assembly and probably a lot of general assemblies are really neat places to, to have an elected position at. Because as soon as I got elected, there's an empty seat, and that seat was right between two Democrats. So it was Patty Bentley, from, I believe she's from Peach County, and then uh, Erica Thomas, who's from the Cobb County area. So Patty Bentley owned a funeral home with her husband, who's since passed, and then Erica Thomas came out of a... Um, foster parent, a foster child environment. Totally different perspective. Yes, Democrats, but we could talk about things. The one thing that really unified us was our faith. And so when we didn't have agreement on the policy, at least I think that there was a kindness towards us in our Christian compassion towards each other. And I think that's really important. And I, unfortunately, I think that's what's being lost in Washington, D.C. right now. And I understand that we come from all different faith backgrounds. I get that. But it's something we have to have a core that unites us. And I, and I say that very seriously. Perhaps it's just the Rotary four-way test because that boils it all down because Rotary gets things done in Democrat locations, uh, Republican locations, because they say that stuff's not important right now. Right now is we need to 
make sure that we can cure polio for the entire world? How do we eradicate polio? How do we get clean water for everyone? How do we stop human sex trafficking? So they set their mission on the goal, and they don't worry about the little things. It's kind of like when you have World War II. All of a sudden, it didn't matter where you came from. We we're all Americans. We're all in this together because we've had a common vision and a common uh, you know, goal that we had, to be, we had to defeat evil. And so when we come together like that on the big issues, so we don't have enough people talking about the big issues of what we really could do to unify America. And how did election security, election fraud become one of those big issues? Well, I think uh, it really came about when I ran back in 2018. What we needed, I said, we needed a new verifiable paper ballot. We had been using those DRE machines for then about 16 years. And just imagine if we would have had those old machines at 2020, and someone says, I want to recount. And it says, okay. Well, boom, press the button. And about two seconds later, you'd have your answer, right? And it would be the same answer. But now we had a verifiable paper ballot, so we go back and check everything. And through that process, we found that Floyd County, Fulton County, and Fayette County, you know, made some tabulation errors. Fulton County was scanned some ballots three times. And so, yes, if you wouldn't have recounted that uh, by hand, 100% recount, you probably wouldn't have caught that. It would have been several months later. People several months later say, hey, I saw, saw that on the video that they, they, counted those, they scanned those ballots twice or three times. Exactly. But when they re, did 100% hand recount, that's when that mistake was caught several months ago. So we had an accurate count. So that was the number one issue that we needed to do. And then I also said we needed to join the Electronic Registration Information Center, which allows us to object our voter, uh, uh, clean up our voter rolls objectively instead of subjectively. Because it's really, when you move to Florida now, yeah. Florida tells you, oh, you've just registered in Florida. Oh, and we begin the process of contacting you. Is it true that you've registered in Florida? Can we take you off the list here? They say yes, they come off immediately. If they don't respond, then they just go into this bin saying, they're registered in Florida, but federal law doesn't let us take them off yet. We just got to let them sit there until they cure. And that, I want to get into the 2020 election a little bit with you. And I know you've probably been playing the 2020 election way too much in your head. Um, when did you realize, A, that the presidential race was going to be as close as it was, and B, that you had a problem? I'd say... Um, Before the election, during it, or after it? Uh, we, we were concerned that the president had a problem probably the day before the election. We looked at how many early votes came in. Uh, we had several people on our staff that have run campaigns before. They also know people that run campaigns, and they know what the demographics are. We kind of knew how many people that had voted uh, on the early vote, uh, also people that had voted absentee, what their voting history was, so you could kind of figure out where you were, what the shortfall was, how many votes behind President Trump was. And many people were saying, we, as Republicans, need to turn out tomorrow on Election Day 1.3 million votes. We turned out less than a million. And when you had that kind of a turnover, it wasn't enough for President Trump to overcome, you know, loss that he had for absentee and the loss that he had in the early votes. You reeled off some numbers today at Rotary, and I don't know if you've got them in front of you, but I think they were fascinating about Purdue's vote count versus Trump's vote count, yep. the congressional Republicans' vote count versus President Trump's vote count. I mean, what did that? what are those numbers? I mean, in all cases, President Trump got substantially less than his Republican counterparts down ballot, right? 
Yeah, those are just data points. Those, those are that, that's out there available. Any consultant can pull it up, and they, they can verify that in the metro area of a, a Metro Atlanta and Athens combined, Senator David Perdue got twenty thousand more votes than President Trump did. And then there were twenty-eight thousand voters in Georgia that skipped the presidential ballot. They said to themselves, "I'm not voting for Joe Biden. I can't vote for President Trump, and I'm not voting for Joe Jorgensen." Just skipped it completely. So they went straight to U.S. Senate. They went right to the Senate. Whoever does that, it's always the guys at the top, the big numbers, and then us as state reps, we're at the bottom, you know, the county commissioners and all that. We all we understand that we're we're at the bottom of the food chain, yeah. and it's the big stuff. They skipped the presidential ballot, and that's not something you normally see. And then the other one is about 33,000 more people in the congressional areas voted for the congressman, the Republican congressman, than they voted for President Trump. What's interesting, though, is one of the people I'm running against, he certified his own race. So he said it was a fair and honest race for his own congressional seat. But yet he said somehow the presidential race wasn't, you know, uh, right for, you know, President Trump. But You're talking about Jody Heiss, who has yeah, been endorsed. You think about that as a pastor, that's a double-minded person that my race is good, but this one's bad. But yeah, it's the same ballots. What's going on here? And so that's the kind of issue that he'll have to, you know, he'll have to have come to, you know, some kind of a justification or rationalization or something, because it's just the facts don't support what he's saying. If you look, Lieutenant Governor Duncan has been an outspoken critic of the president. Much you haven't been a critic as much as you have said these are the facts and you stood up to the president. Um, the way I see it, I mean, you may have been critical, but most of what I've seen is you stood up to him. Um, Lieutenant Governor Duncan's not going to run for re-election and could. You have chosen to seek re-election. Did you think about sitting it out, or what? Or did you say, hey, I need to put my name back on the ballot? No, I th- thought I was always going to run again, and so uh, there's nothing really that's made me want to change. Uh, just because you go through an election cycle and people say stuff, but uh, that's why I've calmly and rationally, I've got all the data, and if people want to sit down objectively, if people are Republicans, I am too. I'm a Ronald Reagan conservative, actually. So um, no one can ever you know, question my voting record in the House, my voting record you know, on city council. I've always been you know, the guy that wanted low taxes, give money back to you know, the taxpayers, uh, pro-business, uh, pro-small business particularly, because that's my wheelhouse. So uh, I have nothing, you know, I have a really good, solid conservative credentials. That said... The facts were the facts, and we had the facts on our side. Now, people don't like the facts. I get that. I'm not. I, when I see what is happening right now, nation, you know, in a na- national perspective, I think what happened to Afghanistan brought back my visions as a teenager when I saw Vietnam 1975, and that was really troubling. And I didn't think we were ever going to go back there again, but we did. When I see what's happening at the border, I'm just like most Americans say. Why can't we have secure borders? Here's why I, I can make the case why we should have secure borders. Did we or did we not have 9-11? We did. Did we? And do we or do we not have a drug problem? We have a tremendous drug problem. And do we or do we not, like, as a sovereign nation, like to know who comes into our country, just like every other country does? So why don't we just have secure borders? And then we can have the debate, how many people should we let in this country as lawful legal immigrants? I'm in the construction business. We e-verify everyone. But also, I'm in the engineering business. And if you look at my office, 
We have people with technical backgrounds, and it looks like the United Nations. We have people all over here. We have first generation, second generations who are, you know, getting a degree in engineering, drafting, or, you know, production worker, craft worker. But my point is, is that we have lawful immigration. Republicans aren't against that. What they want, what they believe in is the rule of law and a lawful process. And so what I see what goes on, I understand people are frustrated. And that's why I've always voted for my team. And my team, my brand, has been the Republican brand. Why did your brand not only lose the presidency in Georgia, it also lost two U.S. Senate seats that had been secure up until January the 5th? Well, that gets into politics and, and uh, you know, prognosticating and things like that. And that someone said that always gets you in trouble. But my belief is if you look at the turnout we had for the runoff, that the turnout wasn't what it needed to be for us to win. But we also know, just from the phone calls we had, my general counsel, all the calls he got from the Democrat Party was about the upcoming runoff race. All the calls we got from the Republican Party was back last fall. So everyone's looking in their rearview mirror about what happened in November. Meanwhile, the Democrats are out there, and they're saying, what are we about this? What about that? What about this? And asking all these questions, and that's, that was their sole focus. And they poured lots of money in it. In fact, one of the things I talk about in my book. Mention your book now. You can hold it up into the okay. camera if you want to. In, so, integrity counts. Yeah, it does. Yeah, that's perfect. And it'll be, it'll be out November 2nd, you yeah. said? Yeah. And tell me what you were talking about in that book, sir. Well, one of the things I talk about is in 2019, um, me and several members of my office went to Washington, D.C. We are fighting this, you know, huge onslaught of lawsuits we had from Stacey Abrams, you know, Fair Fight, and all of her allied organizations. And we went to several organizations, conservative organizations, and the RNC. We said, we need some help. You know, we don't have the funds to fight all these cases. You know, we really need some, some you know, you know we, we would love to have someone come alongside us, file amicus briefs, but we need, we'd love to have additional people in this fight with us. We're fighting this alone. And everyone we saw said, we don't have the money for that. That is not seemed that is not an, an important enough issue for us right now. We have other issues that we're fighting fighting on. Meanwhile, Stacey Abrams wrote a 16-page report, and she's been on the on her trajectory, what she's been doing for the last several years, really going back to 2016, well before 2018. She has now fair fight in 20 different states doing what she does. Do you think what Stacey Abrams has done with fair fight and what the way she has approached elections from a democratic standpoint is visionary. Well, she's a woman on a mission, and, and Republicans need to be on a mission also. And that's why we need someone that's going to stand up and really say, we need to build a bigger team. We need to have a positive, aspirational vision of how we move it forward. The last person that did that, the last person that led the, the, the last political big movement we've had in the last 50 years was Ronald Reagan. There's a Republican revolution that we had. It's Ronald Reagan that did it. But it's positive, aspirational, and it really attracted people to it because it was conservative, but it was principled. It had charisma. It had charm. And he had, he, the guy told great stories. He was funny. You know, he always had a story about everything. We, everyone loved Reagan. Even a lot of Democrats did. And it frustrated the fool out of them because they said, I don't know how, why are, why are all of our people voting for this man? You know, and it's probably like years ago, if you were a Republican during FDR times, we got probably frustrated. You know, my grandparents were frustrated with FDR uh, if you weren't a Democrat then because 
he has a way of really, you know, building a big tent. Well, Reagan built a big tent. So how are we going to build a big tent moving forward? When you talk about presidents and, you know, and the power that presidents have and all that, I know very few people have been put in the position you were when you got that phone call from President Trump back in December. And that phone phone call, the first time I heard it, I mean, I had to listen to it two or three times because I didn't quite grasp what was being said. What went through your mind when you got that phone call and essentially you were being asked to produce 11,000 odd votes? Well, I think before I got the call, Trish and I looked at each other, and we uh, we just kind of have we just kind of grinning at each other, like, "What do you think my What do you think my parents would think about that?" Uh, you know, like isn't this like we would we weren't the people that would would, would talk to a president. Um, we were the uh, you know we were the kind of people that were just quiet, humble people, and all of a sudden, you know, that thing you know po- it pops up, and so. Uh, it was kind of like a, you know, pinch yourself. But then you have the conversation with the president. And he asked for, you know, 11,780 votes. The challenge that he had, there weren't 11,700 votes to be got. We had the data. There weren't 10,000 dead people that voted. There was less than five. There weren't Less than five dead people, yes. not 500. It was less right. than five. Less than five people, yes. There weren't 2,000 felons that voted. There was less than 74 there weren't any underage voting that they were uh, accusing, you know, Georgia allowing to happen. And we didn't have uh, unregistered voters voting. So we, we had all the data points, but but also we wanted to make sure that we were, weren't just talking to ourselves and convincing ourselves that we had the right data points. So every time we heard something, we did a deep dive and we checked it all out. We had to. We had to do our due diligence to come back and say, no, that's not right. This is what it really is. So we asked those hard questions among ourselves to make sure that we were standing on the facts at all times. And you're confident. You oh, I'm are. confident. Yeah. And he actually, really, actually the more that comes out, President Trump, you know, he, I know he came into town. He said what he's going to say. He, but he, he knows sort of his, endorsed Stacey Abrams for governor, didn't he? Well, I'm, I'm endorsing, you know, if, if he wants it. But uh, Governor <laughs> Kemp, because uh, I, I, I'm a, a team Republican, and uh, I don't know what to say to that. I think that uh, that's something going way past that Governor Kemp has done a great job. You think about the issues that we've had with COVID and all the other obstacles, uh, not shutting down the economy, keeping it going through a very tough environment. Um, He has my full support. Well, and the president reiterated his request to you in a letter recently, last week, I believe. I mean, is it going, when's this going to end? It never ends. Because what happens is that you do a full audit like they did, what they call it a full audit in Arizona. And what did are, you they, think? And the cyber ninjas who President Trump's, that was President Trump's uh, team that he picked, they come out and they said, actually, Biden got more votes. Then all of a sudden he says that he disparages them and says there's something, there's other numbers. There are no other numbers. No matter what it is, they keep on moving the goalpost. Then you go look at Michigan, pull that report up. So Senator Ed McBroom, a state senator, actually went to the White House, listened to the Trump people, and was came back, and he was looking for fraud. He did a deep dive on it, and they did a 60-page report. And guess what he found? That they had a fair and honest election in, the, in, floor, in uh, Michigan. 
I'm sorry, I said Florida, but Michigan. Yes, yes, sir. Um, but here's what you can understand about Ed McBroom. What did Paul Harvey say? And then God made a farmer. This man's a dairy farmer from the upper peninsula of, or the uh, upper peninsula or the northern part of Michigan. He's as honest as the day is long. He was looking for something and didn't find it. Puts out a 60-page report. And that's how it really has gone every single time. President Trump knows he's lost, but like Stacey Abrams, he sees how profitable it is, and that's what he's really doing right now. He's running a hustle. He's running a hustle? So Stacey Abrams, yes. So it's you, really the, sa- it's, it's the same coin, just different side. One side is voter suppression, which is not supported by facts. It's not supporting the truth. The other one is voter fraud, which is not supported by the facts, not supported by the truth. And at the end of the day, what both of them do t- are very effective at is creating distrust and really fraying what binds us together. And when you, I want to talk real quickly, this thing escalated to the point that you and your wife got death threats. You were in a situation where people came after you because of doing your job. Um, Were you ever scared for your life? Or did you just think it was political talk? Oh, I think that we were very cautious um, because the people are making this and then when you look at January 6th, when people coming in the Capitol with body armor and zip ties, those people meant business. Do you think our democracy is in trouble right now? I think that our civil course, this discourse, uh, is, is really the, the issue that we have. I think both people need to step back a little bit and start engaging more in lowering the rhetoric and really trying to say, how do we move this forward? It doesn't mean that I'm going to be, you know, I don't endorse, I don't support any of AOC's values, and I know that she doesn't support, you know, you know, you know conservative values. I get that. But I think that we really need to pull people together. And I think when we do that, we can start working on what do we need to do? You know, we have a lot of issues. Uh, we're coming out of pandemic. We have a lot of labor disruptions. We have a lot of shortages of you know, supply disruptions. How do we fix those issues? How do we continue to make America that shining city on the hill that everyone feels like they have an opportunity? What has President Trump done to President Reagan's legacy? Oh, nothing. Who can destroy Reagan's legacy? But President Reagan, you know, stands on his own as a, his own person. We each have to face ourselves in the mirror, and we each are accountable for what we do. And you know what. Other people, you know, do doesn't affect President Reagan's legacy as secure. What do you? Th- how do you think history will judge you, and how do you think it'll judge President Trump? At the end of the day, what I'm so more concerned about is really is how I judge myself, how my wife looks at me, and how my kids and grandkids look at me, and standing for the truth and doing the right thing, and having my family stand behind me. That means more than me than anything anyone could say. We get to the, you know, we're getting close to the end. We've got about three or four more minutes. Um, is there anything else you want to say? Anything I haven't asked you that you wanted, that you'd like to reiterate or make a point of? No, I, I, I kind of, I didn't, in my book, if you, I'm not here to sell books, but I talk about all the facts and figures of the book. And then I go through a day by day analysis. And then I give you some historical context of what we were facing. And I go through an awful lot of that. 
And I started at the end writing about policy, what we could do. And I had about 12 to maybe 15 pages already done about policy and all that. And finally, I just came up with the cursor and a big, a big delete. And I said, here's the real problem. The problem is character. When we fix character, a lot of the stuff goes away. If we don't fix character, none of it goes away. And so that is really, I guess, my takeaway, or my takeaway I would want for people listening to this, is that, and we cannot fix other people, we can only fix ourselves. And I'm at a point in my life, but I've been doing a lot of fixing over the years on me. My family, the Lord, a lot of friends speaking into me, you know, godly biblical wisdom. And so I'm not the same person I was at 20, nor when I was 40. And I'm grateful for that. But to move our nation forward, we have to make that personal decision that we want to be honest, you know, upstanding citizens. This is the greatest country of the world. People need to travel from sea to shining sea. You could plant, you know, a potato, you know, in Oregon, plant one in Maine, plant one in Georgia. Like, what a country. Anywhere you got, you know, you can grow a potato. You can go corn in probably, you know, 49 of our 50 states. Like, what a country. Like, what I mean is that it's a tremendous country. And then the people are friendly no matter where you go. What messes it up is the politics. And the politics get messed up when we lose sight of our character. When you choose a cause over character, you end up with neither. Last question we'll ask you. You're obviously a man of faith. Born again, you said. Do you think the last 18 months have been a test of your faith and your morality? Uh. I guess you have those tests every day and probably what we went through. Uh, Most people don't do them on CNN and Fox news though. Yeah, That's probably true. But I really, I just leaned into the truth. You know, I had the numbers and it really, you know, it was a, I don't want to say, I guess it was an easy decision, but it wasn't a fun one. In other words, the blowback wasn't a lot of fun to live through. I get that, but we were just following the law, following the constitution and so if we lean back into the way our parents raised us, we lean back into our heritage as Americans. And I talked about that in one of my interviews. If people understood how great our founders are, everyone wants to disparage them. These were the smartest people we had in our country that came together. They said, these articles of confederation, they're not working too good. Let's do a constitution now. Let's try and improve upon it. But they were trying to figure it out. And it was tough. And they didn't agree on everything. But they're working hard to make a more perfect union. And it's lasted now for over 225 years. It's an awesome country, and we have a great heritage. So don't squander it. Lean into it. Understand that they weren't perfect people, but probably neither as any of us. But we can each become better. It's a decision we make. That's true. That's true. Um, we, we're at the end of this, and the one thing I do at the end of this podcast is, and I didn't warn you about this, I probably should have, but I call it Turn the Tables. I've been asking you questions. You got a question you want to ask me? What frustrates you the most about America? People don't believe facts when you know they're the facts. Probably one of the things that frustrates you. I'm, I'm reporting stuff. I know it to be factual. I've checked it out. I've gone to the source. I've gone to documents. I've gone to people involved. And people will still say, well, that's not the facts because it doesn't 
jive with what they think the facts are. A lot of that has happened in COVID reporting, quite frankly. Um, and I've done a lot of COVID reporting. Um, when you present people with the facts, they look at them and there's a, another set of facts they think are better. And, you know, I mean, in a recent example, 97% of all the people in Piedmont Columbus Regional right now who are in ICU or on vents or in there with COVID, um, and we had a huge crunch of it in the last two months, were unvaccinated. That's a fact. I mean, that's a medical fact that has been given to us by the hospital. Some people don't believe that fact, and it's a fact. Does that make sense? It does. I mean, you and I probably are very much alike in that in that sense. Well, I do know one thing. I've just enjoyed asking that question. I could really get make that a habit. It's a whole lot more fun asking the questions <laughs> than being on the other side of the mic. Yeah. Thank you, Chuck. <laughs> see, see if Aaron Burnett will give you that privilege the next time you're on you're on uh, you're on CNN. Um, uh, uh, no such luck. <laughs> uh, uh, well, Mr. Secretary, this has been a an interesting conversation. I knew it would be. I thank you for making time to talk to us. And, you know, I can't wait. I hope I live long enough to see what the history books say. I hope, I hope I'm here in 10, 15, 20 years down the road where I can see what history says about what we just went through. Um, our guest today has been Brad Raffensperger, uh, Georgia Secretary of State. You've probably seen him. He's been in all the papers lately. Uh, and on TV, and we're glad he stopped by here, and we'll look forward to having another conversation with another interesting guest next week. Thank you, Secretary. Thank you, Chuck. We want to thank everybody for being here. The Chuck Williams Show can be seen every Tuesday night between 7 and 8 on WRBL.com. We're also in the podcast world. There's the traditional Get It On The Go at Spotify, Apple, and um, iHeart. iHeart. Thanks, Dylan. I appreciate the help, everybody. And then social media. Obviously, I'm on Twitter, at Chuck Williams. I'm on Facebook, Chuck Williams WRBL. And I'm on Instagram, Chuck Williams 0999. We started this podcast by saying we were going to talk to somebody who had been in the crossfire democracy. I think you hear Secretary Brad Raffensperger's story. It's clear. He's been in the crossfire of democracy, and he's done what he believes is right the whole way. Come back next week, and we'll have another Chuck Williams Show guest, and we'll learn more about somebody else. Thanks for listening, guys.